you know, my leadership story begins when I was randomly chosen. I say random because I didn't earn it. I didn't do something to get it. The drill sergeant said, hey, Stakoviak, front and center, you're now the first squad leader. Oh, wow. And that was my first step into leadership. I was selected into it, didn't earn it. I don't think I did anything special. I certainly wasn't. I certainly wasn't the best soldier, so I can't imagine I earned it. And there wasn't training. Like, hey, you're trained up for this. You just got appointed. Yeah, that's right. It was just a OJT kind of thing on the job training. <laughs> you know, learn it or, or fail, and somebody else will be put in your place kind of thing. Welcome backstage. Today, we're bringing Brain Science backstage and... Dr. Mira Reese, my co-host on Brain Science, is flipping the script and turning the mic back on me. So we're going to do a little twist today, and as opposed to focusing on a topic, we're going to do a little bit deeper dive into a person, because part of what we hope to do with this conversation and conversations is really change the way we think and understand the value of the framework that we all have, which contributes to the choices we make and where we get to in life and how we can have the sort of life we all want to embrace. And so I'm super excited because we're going to just go into a deeper dive with Adam Stachowiak. Oh, Woo-hoo. yes. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. So we can, you know, you've been doing the podcast thing for over 10 years now, right? I first podcasted in 2006. Wow. So forever ago. So, right, like before it was a thing, you were a thing. Almost back whenever there was a podcast, you almost knew everybody in the podcast world because it wasn't very big. Yeah. And even when you had a podcast, you got a lot of listens because, I don't know, I guess not so much a lot of listens. You got... It was very easy to become popular because there weren't that many. So I'm curious, how did that start for you? Like, why happenstance? Yeah, I had been working with a fellow named Josh Owens, and we were doing web stuff together. So I was primarily a front-end designer, front-end developer, a UX designer, and I built a lot of websites. And my real knack for doing well was essentially user flow and user experience. Like I really could have an empathy for who the user might be and how they would encounter the problems we're trying to solve with interface. And so that was, you know, what I was doing at the time. And my friend Josh, he actually ran a show called the Web 2.0 Show, which is still online right now, web2oshow.com. The backlog is still there. You can listen to literally from episode one to episode, I think, I can't recall how many, maybe 60 or 70. And, uh, he had a co-host for a while, and at the time, too, like, you weren't really making money from podcasts, so it wasn't, like, serious, so you almost did it as a hobby, as a fun thing, and so the co-host he had at the time uh, was moving on to the th- other things. He was busy in life and decided to move on, and so he's like, hey, I need a new co-host. We were working together, and I said, well, sure, I'll, I'll be your co-host. Now, in... If I can look back at that time then, I was thinking like, gosh, I've never spoken on a microphone. I'm not even sure how much of a radio voice I have or how – and if you go back and listen, like I sound terrible. You know, I'm fumbling and bumbling. I still do that a little bit, but 
I sound better. I sound more seasoned, you know, voice-wise, vocally, even presence-wise and experience-wise, which is just interesting. But, yeah, I, it was by, by happenstance. Somebody had a podcast. I wasn't thinking about it. I didn't self-invite myself. They said, hey, would you be my co-host? I said yes, fell in love with it, got really into it, and uh, that's a long story short. So let me rewind a little bit further then. So you were working in tech, mm-hmm. and how did that happen? Was it something you knew you always wanted to do? You were curious around what? Um, how did I get into software, you mean? Yeah. Um, that's by accident, too. It goes back as far as when I worked at Muzak. So I used to live in Orlando, Florida. And uh, I had a sales job at a company called Muzak, which I believe is now defunct. It, it was like the oldest company in the U.S. for a while there. And we had this database tool called ACT that would essentially – was like a client relations, you know, customer – like a CRM kind of thing where you would manage your relationships with your customers and clients and stuff. And back then, like – I don't know, tech was just so new. I want to say back then, let's say it was like 2002, I want to say, 2000, yeah, 2001, 2002. And so it wasn't like back then so long ago, but like there's just so much more advancement since then, let's just say. Like smartphones was not around. The iPhone did not exist. You know, all this is all predates Facebook and Twitter even, you know, so forever ago in the internet's history. And so I got into tech to some degree by being curious about this stuff and like databasing and connecting this ACT database to another to synchronize contacts and all this different stuff. And uh, and over time, I just got more and more, I suppose, geeky. I didn't really touch my first computer until I was like 22. So I like I was I was into my 20s before I even touched a computer. Well, I'm, well, I probably touched one. In, I, I lied. I'm I'm lying. I touched one in junior high. And but I mean, own my own and be able to like have liberty to play with it and explore beyond a class or, you know, a friend over a friend's house, or whatever. Like I didn't really have my own computer until my 20s. So. And so was it like love at first sight in the sense of like, wow, this is amazing. Kind and of. I just- sure. Kind of. I mean, I was like, I think like anybody, you know, technology is pretty tantalizing. So it's like easy to sort of get lost in it and it's this newfound world and I happen to be pretty smart with some of the things like I was able to pick up some of the things pretty easily more so than other others I didn't really see myself inclined I didn't take any classes aside from say a junior high class on basic which was really funny looking back on that time so then for you college wasn't a part of it like you were training up to go this route um well I didn't go to college yeah I didn't go to school I went in the military instead. Yeah. My, the legacy of my family, all the men in my family had been in the military and that was a thing. So I was like, I should go in the military. I didn't really have a trajectory in life. I didn't have anybody really guiding my long-term life and career and plans. I was just sort of wayward in a lot of ways. And so, so it was almost more default. Like this is just what people do. Not like you guys held particular values as a family that says we fight for our country anything um, like that yeah i wouldn't say it was like oh we we fight for our country but you know when i joined i was like you know what my dad did it my brother did it my uncles did it my grandfathers did it so my choice was based on you know this legacy of but it wasn't like a dna ingrained every day like you must go into the military because 
we serve our country and we fight for our freedoms. But, you know, it was very much still a part of my choice was like, you know what? My dad did it. My dad was in Vietnam. Um, my uncle was in Vietnam. You know, we, we spent some time, you know, whether that war was something people look back on as something, you know, disgraceful or not. You know, my father's effort and work towards the nation and the country was had a purpose. And so I believed in that. And I was like, I'm going to follow in their footsteps and do the same thing. And now were any of them career military or just they served for a time? Um, my father was just drafted for the for the war and was out afterwards. Same for my uncle, my grandfather. I think everybody, my grandfather's, one of them may have served 10 years or so. Um, but none of them were like career military. So then let me ask you, are there things then sort of mentally that you took away from your military experience? Oh, yeah. Gosh. Everything. Yeah? Everything? I mean, I fully believe in um, the camaraderie, the, you know, all the things. I mean, I'm trying to even recall the things I can recall from that experience. But, yeah, it's it's like if I – I'm not sure I'd be – the same me without going into the military. And now because how long did you serve? It's three and a half years. It was a program okay. where you went in for your training and you served three years plus your training. So it was three and a half years. Um, served overseas. We went to Bosnia, did some stuff like that. I had a lot of fun doing it. But, yeah, I mean, the discipline, the training, the honor, you know, the trust, the the buddy system – you know, all the training necessary. I mean, so much of it, the discipline was ingrained in me. And I may not get up at 6 a.m. anymore in my life and run four miles before 9 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. I did it one time. <laughs> uh, there's a season to all life, of course. But, you know, I very much hold the values of that time in my life close to my heart. And so that said, I, I would, if anybody says to me they're considering the military, I'm usually going to be an advocate. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like it played a pretty c- critical role for you in in going these sort of skills are adaptive whether they're part of the military or not. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, my leadership story begins uh when I was randomly chosen. I say random because I didn't earn it. I didn't do something to get it. The drill sergeant said, "Hey, Stakovac front and center, you're now the first squad leader." And that was my first step oh, wow. into leadership. I was selected into it, didn't earn it, didn't I don't think I did anything special. I certainly wasn't I certainly wasn't the best soldier, so I can't imagine I earned it. So And it there just, wasn't training. Like, hey, you're trained up for this. You just yeah, got appointed. That's right. It was just a OJT kind of thing on the job training. <laughs> you know, learn it or or fail and somebody else will be put in your place kind of thing. So I was like, holy crap, I'm a leader now. Whatever that even means, what does that mean to lead? What does that mean to be, to guide other people in my squad? Now, I wasn't leading the whole platoon. I was leading my squad. But first squad leader is second in command to the person who's leading the platoon or the squad or the, you know, whatever. So it's the unit. And uh, and so I, I was like, what does it take to be a good soldier? Yeah. And so all those things I learned. And I just sort of got lost in the opportunity and lost in uh, in the journey of what it means to be great at being a soldier. Did it strike you at all at that time, the way in which your decisions actually affected anybody else? Were you mindful of that? No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe. Um, 
I don't know. I can't say that's a one to one. It's hard for me to to remember a lot of the details, aside from. I suppose just sort of like. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm not answer that honestly. Well, I just ask because I mean, especially being that age, that I wouldn't suspect per se that you would be reflective around it, but nonetheless, that there were things you were doing as considerate of the fact that it wasn't just you who felt the effects of your choices. Oh, yeah. I, I suppose in that regard, I mean, people then came to me to know what they needed to do. So they would say, Stakoviak, because in the military, everybody's by their last name. So I'm Stakoviak, not Adam. Right. Or Stacks. <laughs> They'd call me Stacks or Stack or Stakoviak. So usually it was just full name Stakoviak. Or, yeah, I guess sometimes Stacks. Stacks, what should I, what should I do? Uh, we're going over here. We're going to meet in this way, you know, whatever. You need to have, you know, your uniform press. You need to, you know, have these things. We need to be in this formation at this time, you know. So all the questions sort of came to me, and it was up to me to sort of have the information or just, you know, sort of wing it <laughs> in a sense. I mean, because I didn't really know how to be a leader. So I just sort of just took it on and said, okay, we need to be here. I just did my best to prepare. At the time, too, we were also learning a lot about the military. It was We were also learning what it meant to be, collectively, what it meant to be a good soldier. You know, And a lot of that came from understanding the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which was like the UCMJ. It's the law, essentially. So people who are in the military are not bound by simply civilian law. They're bound by civilian law right. as well as military law, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And so I could do something that would not get me into jail as a civilian – as a civilian, but if mm-hmm. I do it as a soldier and it's something that a civilian can do and not get in jail or be in trouble, but do it as a soldier or somebody in the military, I can get in trouble. So, so there's interest- things we're bound by that are not you know, simply civilian law. Right. So like a construct within a construct of going, hey, I have like a double filter yeah. that I'm always evaluating things. Yeah. So I'm. do you think that from a perspective today, looking back, would you say that those experiences helped you sort of build a sense of confidence around your own decision making when you don't know, especially? I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I think from I either had an, a side of confidence always or it was cultivated then because I think I can recall my 20s essentially a confident person. The things yeah. I did, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I would, I would just make choices and sort of not have a lot of anxiety about what I was trying to do. Like, I, I can't describe any particular example, but I just had this, you know, I suppose ambition, you know, and self-assurance. I would probably qualify it as that. Maybe confidence is the side you, you would say, but I think more, I was always self-assured that whatever I was doing, I can get through it well enough to not be scathed, you know? Yeah. Couldn't be harmed. Maybe that's just 20s in general, but I, maybe that was, <laughs> I, that's what I recall. Yeah, maybe not fully cooked frontal lobe at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> especially when you don't recognize danger. Are you scared? Right. Yeah, exactly. You just hit the accelerator because it's right. fun. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> so then do you think that there is a time in which you sort of switched to being more deliberate around goals or sort of where you want to get to as opposed to more happenstance? Mm. I think 
when I got that job at Muzak, which is an interesting story because when I left the military in 2001, I didn't have a plan aside from I'm going to go to school for to be a, a film director or an audio engineer in film. Like I was going down to Florida. My buddy DK uh, lived there. So I was actually going there to like meet up with a, a friend I'd grown up with in high school who was going to a school in Orlando called Full Sail. And Full Sail is a school you go to to learn about audio, video, you know, like many film directors, many people who are skilled in Hollywood and the film industry in general came from or come from Full Sail. And so I was leaving the military. I think I'm going to go down here to Florida. I've got this dream. I'm not even sure how to achieve it, but this is my dream. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to learn how to be a film director. I'm going to direct films. That didn't happen. Um, <laughs> but it didn't stop me from trying. And so I went down there and I never got to like actually start at Full Sail because I, I don't know, I guess it was right after 9-11 too. So that was January 2001 and then 9-11 happened that September. So September, life similar right. to now with this pandemic changed quite a bit as a nation. We were mourning as a nation and there's a lot of, a lot of change um, in terms of travel and security and stuff like that. And so there was a major downturn in the economy in Orlando, Florida, because it was really driven by travel. And at the time, travel was sort of jacked up. So the economy tanked and I lost my uh, terrible server job. I was working as a <laughs> as a server at uh, at Rainforest Cafe oh, in, the, uh, in the Animal Kingdom. Right outside right. the Animal Kingdom in, uh, at Disney is a Rainforest Cafe, like sort of like right outside the gate. So it's not in it, but it's the oh, Rainforest Cafe for Animal Kingdom. And so I worked at that animal, at that Rainforest Cafe. Love my job, love what I did. But, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't like pursuing some sort of like, I wasn't trying to be the best server. I was just sort of like living life. You know, I didn't really have, a plan aside from this dream, I assumed at some point I would make my, my you know, pivot to go to full sale for real, you know, but just life was just sort of happening. I wasn't really like doing life. Life was sort of doing me. And uh, I was just going with it because I was just a flexible, go with the flow kind of person, just roll with it. Um, and so to kind of get back to to this is when I got the job at Muzak, I was, was at uh, – I was I had a good friend who was a DJ, terrible DJ. He was just trying and so he got this gig at this sort of nightclub in the daytime. It was more like 6 p.m. versus 11 p.m. So not the time when a lot of people were really at this club. And um to make a long story short, a guy named Sean Hughes was also there, worked for Muzak. And I saw him talking to my DJ friend and his girlfriend and so after they were done talking, I walked over to them. And I said, hey, any friend of mine is a friend – or any friend of my friends is a friend of mine. And I shook his hand and introduced myself. And so that – I didn't know that at the time, but that was what caught this person's attention about my character, that I was just sort of like out there and, you know, just ambitious, I suppose, unapologetically or whatever, just willing to just say hello to anybody. And so I was talking to him and we got to talking and long story short, he's he's – Ask me what I want to do with my life. I'm like, well, I'm thinking about getting into car sales because you know, I'm, I'm really good at sales, but I love helping people. And he's like, don't get into car sales. I've been in car sales. And I was just trying to find my way to sort of earn money to get into school and you know go on this plan of mine. Sure. And so long story short, he says, hey, come and work. Well, come come interview for this this job I have open at Muzak. I think you'd, you'd be a good candidate. 
So that was that was Friday, Monday morning. I'm like stressed all week. I'm like, I got like a legit job interview. I didn't even try. <laughs> and like right? WeTech is a is a worthwhile company and an amazing place to work at. And so I uh, stress all weekend. I'm planning for going in and I've got friends who are just like partying all weekend. I'm just trying my best just to like not hang out with them and stay stay on my straight and narrow and prepare for Monday. And I go in on Monday and I make an impression and long story short, I get the job at Muzak. And wow. so I forget your original question, but all that was leading to this point that that was my first real professional experience. And so I had sort of gotten this career trajectory uh, desire from getting this job. Like everything sort of spun from getting this job. So my experience in the military, you know, led me to be a disciplined, you know, regimented person that was reliable and understand honor, duty, and selfless service. And I got this job at Muzak and I just just do my best to kill it. And I can share that story if you want. But, you know, I I was like the number five salesperson in the company. Wow. Two hundred salespeople, so there's a lot of people. So do you, would you describe yourself as pretty relational? I think so, yeah. Because I mean it's interesting even as you talk through it, sort of opportunities that emerged, but one of the things that stands out as you share is even you articulate the actual individual, not just there was this person. Like these people that you call by name played instrumental and influential roles in your life's trajectory. Yeah. And I guess I see that even within what you've created within the changelog because you really value community, don't you? Oh, yeah. It's everything. So I think that's an interesting sort of juxtaposition considering that, you know, in technology, a lot of people are working more with computers or things as opposed to people. But yet there's always a person behind making the computer or the program or the software do what you need it to do. I don't know where that came from, but I think it's from this whole user experience designer role I, I really loved and enjoyed because I like people. I didn't, you know, I guess I'm realizing now through you saying, so I, I guess I like people a lot, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I really cared that somebody, if they were going to use software, use this application or do this thing, that they find enjoyment in it, you know, or that they can actually be successful at it. I'm a helper, so I like to help people. And so that was my way as as much as I was a designer to help them enjoy whatever they were trying to get done, done. And that could be uh, searching. It could be reading a blog post. It could be you know hitting a landing page and sort of understanding what this company has to offer and taking action. It had many different manifestations, but you know I really enjoy helping people. And so I think that's why I was good at that. Sure. So did you tend to sort of find irritants in whatever you were doing and go like, this doesn't work well, and then oh, yeah. always end up troubleshooting, every going, day. how do I make this better? Yeah, every day. I mean, every day. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I, I mean, that's what I, you're constantly hitting and scrutinizing the flow of an application. And you're constantly thinking, how could it be better? What can we take out to make it more minimal? You know, are we... Are we asking for the absolute necessary things? So minimalism, essentialism, all that sort of like ties into, I think, that kind of role for me in particular. And it was like that was always on the table, was always questioning those things. How can we make it less? 
how can we make it easier? How can we make it more fun? How can we make it more successful in terms of like getting through whatever the workflow was? So it's interesting because as you talk as well, it's as if these sort of opportunities came out of nowhere and then you're like, sure, I'll just go on that ride and see where it takes me. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that it was really that happenstance when you look back in retrospect or would you say that there were actual other decisions you made in advance of those that sort of put you in a position either in terms of mindset and what you were looking for or uh, just actionable sort of skills or sort of work behaviors that made you ripe for those opportunities? No. I think if if somebody would have found me and caught my attention with building cars, I would be I would be making race cars right now. Really? If somebody had found me and uh, caught my attention with engineering bridges, I'd be the best bridge engineer out there. I don't think – I think that I was just looking for something to pour into. Mm-hmm. And I I guess I always enjoyed helping people. So sales was just naturally easy for me because my theory and belief in sales isn't to manipulate you into making a choice. It's to help you solve a problem. So I'm a problem solver. I'm a helper, and so I like to help people, and I like to add value to people's lives. That's, like, natural for me. So I, I think I just found tech, maybe. It was maybe just what landed for me or what caught my eye, and I never let go. Yeah, but I think it's interesting because when you were talking earlier, you mentioned that it was sort of easy for you. Like, you took to it. Sure. And so – you know, while I'm sure many of us could take to different things, like for whatever reason, it was sticky enough that you it was enough emotional payoff, like we've talked about. There's enough of that dopamine that says, do it again. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, if we're talking about that, I think the dopamine would probably come from helping people. And I think with technology generally, so I would say probably the earliest help I ever did with software or any sort of like technical thing was the uh, was our receptionist and uh, executive assistant to the office? She always needed help with these with that particular thing. She wasn't technologically inclined, and neither was I. I just was willing to sort of learn it, and so I would help her all the time, like deal with our database stuff and help other executives, uh, other kind of executives. I was an account executive as well you know, deal with our customer base and information and stuff like that. So I was, I solved value in solving problems. I solved my own problems. I solved her problems. I solved uh, some of our, you know, immediate staff's problems. And so I guess it's also some payout in the fact that, you know, if I learn these few things and master a few of these skills, I can help people. It's interesting how like really strong that is for you of just this desire to sort of serve other people and how that's like, and alongside of the learn on the fly, like you weren't learning via textbook and somebody teaching you, you sort of go, how can I put together things that other people wouldn't necessarily put together? Yeah. Which in turn makes it easier for them or like easier for them to navigate. Yeah. One of my coworkers at music at the time taught me a valuable lesson. I sort of lean on. To this day, I, sp- I suppose I learned it then or learned what it meant. And he said, uh, there's more of a backstory, but I'll say, he just said, be resourceful. And so that stood out to me. And I was like, well, what does that mean to be resourceful? Well, this guy was fairly young. 
uh, you know, fiance, new wife, plans to have a kid very soon. I think they got had their kid a few years after that or a year after that. So like young, ambitious, successful. And I was like, he was very much like somebody I, you know, idolized and wanted to model because I was like, that's, I like that. I want, I want to be young, ambitious, successful. I want to be as put together as he is. And no one said, Hey, Adam, because his name was Adam too. Hey, Adam, how, this <laughs> is how you do things. This is how you do these things. His name's Adam Huxhold, actually. LinkedIn buddies with him still yet, too. I'm paying attention to him, what he's doing now. And uh, that's why I love LinkedIn. Um, but he's like, I was like, how do you how do you learn how to do these things? How did you how did you learn how these things work to to serve the company in these ways and do these kinds of sales and be this good? He's like, man, you gotta be resourceful. I said, what does that mean? He's like, well, when you hit roadblocks, when you hit sort of hurdles, you get over them. If you need more information, you got to find it. Somebody's not going to give it to you. And I was like, hmm. well, that makes sense. And so ever since then, I'm like, I learned the idea of be resourceful. And so I suppose that I never let a a challenge sort of just be like, well, I don't have the information. I can't solve the problem and bail on it and leave it. Let it I lie. Saw it, I saw it more as like, how can I conquer this thing? You know, how can I get through this, over this, whatever it might be? And I suppose that's probably the um, early indications of entrepreneurship for me because that's when I sort of learned those early things. Like an entrepreneur doesn't allow a hurdle to get in the person's way. They learn how to get around, get under, get through, remove, you know, replace, disrupt, mm -hmm. you know, and and that's sort of like uh, – that's why I learned early entrepreneurship. And also when you're in sales too for organizations like Muzak or others, you're very much treated like while you may be a W-2 employee and get commission and you are an employee, it, you're very much uh, your own business. Like the business I bring is, is, is responsible by my efforts. The company may have a brand and may bring some things along too and there may be some brand equity I leverage as part of that. But if I don't put effort into – I'm not going to get anything out of. And so I very much had to be a self-starter. I had to be self-motivated, self-assured. I had to be resourceful. I had to learn these things to get through these things. And if not, I would have sucked as an account executive for Muzak. It would have been terrible. You know, it's interesting because as you talk about, you know, sort of being resourceful, my mind makes sense of it as sort of having initiative. Sure. Like going – you know, right? Nobody's going to do it for me, so I'm going to go figure it out. And I I was going to, like, that. it's exactly what I was thinking in terms of the entrepreneur. So you didn't have this, like, vision when you were a kid or even early, you know, young adult to mm -hmm. say, I think I want to work for myself. Well, you know, I think I'm a big believer in representation because no one, aside from, say, my grandfather, and I didn't even understand what that really meant. He, my grandfather did a bunch of stuff, I suppose, but he sold tires. He was a tire salesman out of his own garage and he would fix people's cars. And like, it was back in the day when like this person just helped everybody. So that might've been my own, only example of it, but nobody was a model for me of being an entrepreneur. I didn't know you can work for yourself. Wow. I thought you had to go to school. I thought you had to do the, you know, I thought you just, I came from an area where there wasn't a lot of you know, opportunity in the immediate area. And so everybody, a lot, not everybody I knew 
was successful or had their own business. So there wasn't, it wasn't a model to me that entrepreneurship or running your own thing or running your own business or being self-employed was an option. So I never had, had that as a, as a dream. It was never given to me until later in life. So it was very much this sort of like, aha, but through these other experiences, it actually provided you with some sort of mental framework that goes, oh, wait a minute, like how I conduct myself and and really the sort of correlation between effort and outcome was well-developed through that experience with Muzak. Sure, yeah. Right? And I would say that's generally speaking in, you know, certain sales environments, that's where it works well, Yeah. right? I go out, I work hard, and then I get the feedback from that. And I mean, it is a lot about building relationships, right? And yeah. and meeting needs of going, you, I have a product or I have something that I think would be very helpful for you. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn the helpful part until a while later on, though. I mean, while I was always wanting to be a helper, uh-huh. I didn't always understand that sales was about helping. It took really? me a long time to learn that. Believe it or not, I mean, like, it would make sense logically that sales is about helping people and solving problems, but it it didn't always feel that way. It didn't always, I didn't learn that lesson right away. And, uh, and yeah, I don't really know when I learned it, but I can remember many years, even being successful at sales, but not being what I would consider good at sales, because to me, good isn't simply your number that you earn or the thing you bring, you know, the sales you get. It's... It's how how much value did you provide the client base or the customer base you're trying to attract? That to me is what marks a good salesperson. How much value came from your effort to them and to your company, not just simply the number you brought in. Yeah, so it's interesting with all of the things you're talking about because you sound very much like you're a doer and you're like, I'm going to, whatever I invest in, I'm gonna give that all I've got. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you're also thinker and going, how can I think around this? And yet what's interesting is sort of the way in which the ahas or reflections come later. And I think that in some ways is um, just part of the process because you're learning on the fly and going, I'll just figure it out. Not like somebody is like literally creating the framework for you. But you're sort of creating this puzzle that goes together and going, oh, wait, that piece fits right here mm-hmm. and will make it much easier for me to go about my life. Yeah. I could see me kind of like building the framework if we're going to call it a home or a building or something like that, whatever this framework is, if we can think of it as a structure. I'm like sort of building the things on the fly and then like retrospectively reevaluating what I built. Is it correct? And like undoing and rebuilding and sort of constantly building the structure evaluating it, shuffling it, strengthening it, changing out some of the materials, whatever it might be. It's, it's, I can see that as like how my mental framework has been built over time is like that. It's like, I'll build a little bit, reevaluate it, and sort of let a, a whole wing be neglected for a long time and then come back to it and be like, oh, hang on a second. We got to fix this. Right. It's interesting. Like even you and I had a recent conversation because – so I can't help but think of creativity – as relevant in what you're talking about. Because if you're doing that, you're always having to sort of think differently, both in the process and in retrospect, right? Sure, yeah. And so you and I were having a conversation and you've talked about, or we've talked about on the show, your love for bikes 
and how you recently sort of created your own bike. And and I said, oh, it's your custom bike. And you're like, well, no, I I just built it. it. I yeah. yeah, I put it together. And you're like, I guess that it would be custom. Well, what I'm what I was trying, I suppose I was confused by the level of customization because I didn't make the part specific for the bike. You know, I assembled the bike. Is, right. is how I look at it. It all the parts are chosen by me, so that's the custom part of it. But I didn't custom make a fork for it and custom make, you know, a suspension system for it. I just assembled the bike based upon my choice of parts. Right. But so interesting that you see it as even being that base layer, like even further or right. more right. than just that. And I think that that is really sort of reflective of how your mind works. Yeah. And especially relative to the creativity, right? Because I don't think people sort of think about themselves and the work they do more routinely as it relates to being creative. And yet, I think it's the biggest way in which people practice showing up in the world and sort of cultivate the life they want to have. Would you agree? Um. I, yeah, I do agree with that. Um, I'm thinking about like not everybody is creative. I suppose a lot of people bring their creation to the world, their art to the world. I always I, I remember actually having this conversation with my wife and saying, this is my art, babe. You know, and I can't the recall bike. It. You mean well, the bike? It could have been the bike. It could have been anything. Like I think anything I put my passion into, like this is my art. You know, yeah. I suppose anything we put our creativity into could be how we raise our kids is our art. You know, how we, sure. you know, maybe the way we uh, wash our vehicle or something like that could be an art. You know, like if you have a process <laughs> to it, it's part of your creativity. You know, not sure. everybody has the same workflow and not everybody, not everybody can get the same shine from their car. Um, I just think of like your effort in life is your art. Okay. But so in that way, wouldn't it make sense that you've sort of been able to cultivate what you have? And, and by that, I'm saying sort of all of the podcasts, the changelog community is because of this interplay around creativity and initiative. I would say so, yeah. Because it's not like you had, I mean, when you started podcasting, you didn't go, I'm going to build the changelog and have this huge community. No, no. Right. Like most things that just sort of played out. Well, and that's just it. I followed the string, you know, I followed the, I followed something to it. Some sort of, you know, lore was, was always chasing something through something. Right. Which is why I can't help but think about the role of curiosity. Yeah. I'm very curious. Right. That curiosity was sort of the carrot that has kept you going and that there's a sense of intrigue or discovery that's like, I don't know how that works or I don't understand that problem. And is there a hack to help? remove that obstacle, not just for myself, but for someone else. A specific time I can think about this is whenever I was working for a nonprofit called Pure Charity. They're still around. They're still amazing. PureCharity.com. Got some amazing people there. And I loved my time there. And I, my first role there was as a UX designer. So I was responsible for the applications interface and all these different things and user workflow, et cetera. And at some point the opportunity came to me to be graduated or to be, to, um, to get a promotion into being the product manager of it. 
so that had a bigger role of like not just you know I had some I still had inputs into my previous role, but I had inputs into so many others. I can influence the direction it went as a business, you know whether or not what we built would actually make money, and if it didn't didn't need to make money, how could I build what, what was necessary? Not just alone, but collectively as a group. I was in charge of many many things, uh, but when I first was given the role, of course I said yes because I never say no to that kind of thing. I'm like, of course I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'll take the role. And, uh, but afterwards, I think I got the promotion on a Friday and afterwards I was like, what did I just say yes to? What, what actually is this job even? I don't know. I think I know. I have no clue what I'm really <laughs> doing. You know, I knew but, it was a step. It was the next step. And I knew sure. other people who did those things. And to some degree, I had already been doing some of that role because of just my, natural ambition and what I do, uh, what I did as a designer for the organization at the time. So over that, uh, over that weekend, I'm like, I've got to learn. And I read, uh, two different books. I'll have to recall what they are and put them in the show notes to be specific, but like two pivotal books for me. I know one was inspired and I can't recall the other, but they were essentially on product management, how to be a product manager, what you can, what you would encounter doing this job, what you would encounter, you know, in, in many ways. And so I went to boot camp essentially. And by the time Monday came around, I was <laughs> not really ready, but I was, I had that confidence that I didn't have Friday evening when I was like, what the heck did I just say yes to? But by sure. time Monday, I was like, I read a majority of at least both of these books to have an understanding of where I'm going. And I kept reading those books, of course, but, uh, yeah, I said yes before I really knew, and then over the weekend I found out, and I was still excited, but I didn't know. But I got really deep into that role because I think I love to just be challenged on those fronts. And when I don't have challenge, I start to get bored and complacent and and lazy, and it's not a good thing for me. So I, I think I move a lot and change a lot because I like challenge, but I have to air that on the side of like you can't constantly reinvent. You have to – have consistency and, you know, contentment in what you're doing. So I have to constantly balance that, that desire to change and move and new challenge with contentment and consistency. It's, it's tough sometimes. Well, part of what I heard you say in there too was a way in which like you just love to learn and that that's part of the problem solving process for you. Like if I was thinking about it, like if you don't know, you go, like you go find. Yeah. You learn what to fill in the gaps, and whether it's a who or a what will help bridge that gap for you. Yeah, and so that is a sort of ongoing process, right? You know, I don't realize it, but my wife is pretty impressed with me on this front. Like she, well, she loves to celebrate our life together. It's not that I don't. She just she's on social media and she enjoys sharing with our friends and stuff like that our story. And I'm I'm not on social media as much for many many reasons. And, uh, and so I always appreciate seeing my life through her eyes, our life through her eyes, because she's impressed by me and different things because I don't stand down from challenges that, you know, as you said before, if I put my mind to it, I find a way through it. Um, that could be a thing. Put your mind to it, get through it. Um, <laughs> right. But, you a know, little like, hint of stubbornness. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> with the with the mountain bike in particular, I'm I'm personally surprised by me because a year ago I I didn't know a ton about a bike, a mount, you know, a, a bicycle, you know. So there's a lot of things that are similar and the same. 
across all bicycles, but mountain bikes in particular have suspension and different things like that. And so I had no idea about the tools, about the process to build, rebuild, take apart, fix, you know, service, whatever, a, a, a bike. And today I have I have complete confidence to, if somebody said to me, I got an idea for a bike, I can literally help them build the bike. And I have total confidence. A year ago, I didn't even know. Yeah. So I don't know what really drove me to design, to well, learn it, but I love learning new things, I suppose, like that, that are, you know, there's a, there was a learning curve to it. For a while there, I spent many years not knowing and being very threatened by and intimidated by even taking the wheel off the bike, which <laughs> is very easy, you know. But at the time, I was like, what happens when you remove the wheel, you know? That like, was exactly I my thought no of like the what if, right? Yeah. What would happen? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had no clue, but, you know, I took the challenge on and I... You know, YouTube is such an amazing resource, too. There's so much information on YouTube. I learned how to build, you know, build and rebuild a mountain bike based upon all this information on YouTube that's out there for many different creators. And they're creators like me that have passions. And it just I just love the right. world we're in now where you have this sort of uh, blank check, not so much in, in money sense, but like this op- this blank opportunity for creators to just if you're interested in hamsters you can create a channel on youtube i'm sure or somehow to some sort of be some sort of creator uh to to share that information on what you love about hamsters and somebody's gonna love it you know and it's just so crazy that that's the case for we're in that kind of world now for creators touche touche and honestly it's interesting because i think all of that is so intertwined of what part of this sort of love for and around technology and the way in which it's served you and can serve others and how much people can learn and grow to really cultivate more of what they want for their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, we've spent much of this conversation sort of focused on you in terms of work and, and, and professionally for mental framework, but I can't help but also think about the key people like that there have been some people throughout your life that have also played a critical role i mean just like you said with your wife yeah that she's pretty proud of you (laughs) she is and i'm always thankful when i see that because you know she tells me but how often do you get a chance to tell somebody how proud you are of them or how impressed you are of them every single day and so i always appreciate her her announcements to the world about her life because she shares those things with me in cards and stuff like that and even personally but it's sort of different because she's she's boasting about me i suppose in a positive way and i suppose i appreciate it because it's a a different lens you get to read somebody else's thoughts about how they feel about you and how they're impressed by you and it's just interesting well i would also say that i think that you know especially in the case of you know your wife that she sees things in you that you don't even know mm-hmm. the degree to which you're capable of. So I would suspect, and I don't know, but like in regards to the bike that she would have probably initially responded like, go try it, Adam, you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> right? That she sort of says, go, go ahead and provides an additional platform for you. Yeah, she definitely is a my encourager. I mean, if... um my mom said it too. If I become obsessed with something, like like my hobbies, I become obsessed with. 
to not like I suppose it could be borderline bad, but I get to the point where I'm like I just get so focused on it that I I learn all there is to know about it so that I can fully enjoy it and fully master, it, I suppose. And so my mom and Heather, my wife, share similar, in my opinion, similar positions on that because they both had that uh that sort of uh consent, I suppose. Like if if he likes it that much, he will do these things. So it's like this belief in me. Yeah. So it's really interesting in terms of looking back on the key things that have sort of shaped you in getting you to where you are and going somewhere intentional and somewhere just, you know, capitalizing on opportunities. But what really stands out to me as we talk is how much you've put relationships at the forefront of your life and going, I respect other people, the value that they have, and really to expressing a curiosity about them mm-hmm. and the things that are valuable to them, which in turn actually helps you, although that was never be the motivation. Yeah. I mean, I was always a helper. I like to help people. And and I learned later on in life, the key to getting what you want more often than not is helping somebody else. Because somehow that plays out. I don't know how it works out that way, but that's that's a, an ism or a thing that's known in the startup world. Like if you want to help somebody, usually the best thing to do is help somebody else. Or if you want to help yourself, Definitely. usually the best thing to do is help somebody else to get what right? they want. Yeah. Because somehow it, it just happens that way. And I suppose I'm lucky because I enjoy that and I, I benefit from that fact or that, that thing. Um, but it wasn't on purpose. But I think that beneath that too is this underlying sense of uh, trust of, you know, always being taken care of in the sense that, you know, if adversity comes or unexpected challenges or obstacles, like not only can I figure out a way around it, but I've also got the support of other people right with me, Mm -hmm. alongside me. That's important too. I mean, having... Your inner circle, your your people. I don't have many. Uh, some by design, some by just how things work. I don't like to have a lot of people. I suppose you know. Um, yeah. Like in my inner circle, I don't have a big inner circle. You know, I don't have thousands of friends. I suppose I have a lot of acquaintances and a lot of professional friends, people I would consider friends, but we're not like hanging out together. I don't know their deeper, darkest secrets, and they don't know mine. You know, I think those are like those deeper inner circle friends. I don't have a desire, nor do I have, uh, you know, a lot of those kinds of friends. Well, it's interesting because given what you shared, it would make sense the way in which you sort of go after knowledge, improvement, learning, and all these other things that that would be a lot of energy if you took a deep dive with all people in the way that you do with the few people and few things that you invest in. Yeah, I'm definitely, if they're, if I do it, I do it deeply. You know, so if I have a friend, I'm going to be a friend deeply. You know, I'm not going to be a surface friend. I'm not going to show up every once in a while. I'm going to, you know, I don't have time to show up every, all the time for everybody. So I, that's probably why I have, by design, less friends because I just can't go. Like, why have the friend if you can't go deep with them? You know, why be a surface friend? Right. But it's interesting because I think with this, and being able to create a company that's really 
based upon helping others and talking to and having all of this community. It's a way for you to invest in and interact with lots of people. Yeah. Right? And hear their stories and ways in which you can participate, support, you know, them and collaborate. And yeah. and I really think that, you know, that is one of the key components when it comes to being successful or getting what you want is recognizing, you know, the role of people in that. And that even if you're focused in your career and working more with things or, you know, um, tangible, not human things, that there's still at the beginning and the end, the people you do it alongside of and with play a critical role in the way in which that feels and where you get to. People are crucial. Yeah. I mean, what's, What's worth doing if you can't do it with people, you know? Like, gosh, yep. even bike riding. Uh, I like to do solo rides, but, I mean, it's 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 a lot more fun when you have a, a gang of people riding together, like in line together, you know, facing challenges together. You know, everything's better together. Amen. I couldn't have said it better. And so with that, I am so thankful for our listeners who are on this ride with us and listening. And we'd love to hear your feedback and if you've got ideas, um, things you want to learn more about, challenges you encounter, or ways in which you've navigated obstacles in your life, come join us over on Slack. That's right. Changelog.com <laughs> slash community to sign up for free or to listen to the show. Changelog.com slash brain science. Awesome. Thanks for being open and sharing your story. Oh, and yes. Thank we you. hope to hear lots more stories of other people and the frameworks that they've used. Um, to get where they are in their lives. This has been fun. Yes, it has. <laughs>